Hello, and welcome to the Wonderland Exhibition Podcast with me, your host, Doug Burton. I'm an artist and educator in the creative arts. Each episode will be a short conversation with a participating artist considering their work, intentions for the show, and anything that emerges in between. The Wonderland Exhibition will take place from the 1st of July to the 5th of August 2023 at the Tremonier Sculpture Gardens in Cornwall. The exhibition shows new sculptures from the Southwest about landscape and walking from members of the Royal Society of Sculptors, with assistance from Penzance-based writer Martin Holman. Okay, everybody, welcome to the last of the podcasts from the show Wonderland, which is just about to close at the Tremonier Gallery and surrounding areas at the Tremonier Sculpture Gardens. And throughout the process, just before the show, Doug Burton uh, very kindly interviewed a bunch of us individually about our work when he created podcasts which were a vital part of, of getting to know the show and getting to know the eye to artists behind it. And Doug put a lot of work into doing this. But one of the things that was really missing from the, the collection of podcasts was really Doug and his work. And so we've decided to finish the series of podcasts with an interview. And rather than one person doing this, we've decided that that I, Mark Richards and, and Barbara Bear will, will do a joint interview with Doug to really allow him to talk about his work, to ask him some questions about the work that he has at Tremonier, but also about his practice in the broader sense. So here we are. So welcome, Doug, and welcome, Barbara. Thanks, Mark. Hi. It's great to be here. So Barbara, would you like to start? Yeah, I have. I actually, I just did a an Instagram takeover and I showed a few pictures of, you know, different work. And, and one of your, uh, one of your sculptures was in there, Doug. And, um, and then I scrolled back through your Instagram and there was a, a a quote where you talk about the ebb and flow of forces um, and the history around the coastline. And um, because I was looking for structures that have to do with water and your, you know, your pot, it had something about water in there for me. And this connection with the coastline, could you could you talk about that a bit? You've gone straight into um, <laughs> the middle <laughs> Sorry, of things style. here, Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> you might be taking that slightly out of context. Um, if I could talk about my work for the show and maybe that lead into that, because my approach for the Wonderland exhibition was more about understanding something around folklore and history. And perhaps if they're not forces, there's some way that uh, language and material comes into the work. So where physical forces that you might be alluding to in an ebb and flow and forces, maybe I'm more interested in, in a kind of uh, history or narrative forces that can be enigmatic in some way to a sculpture or drawing. So that's possibly my way into that uh, that particular idea. Does that help to sort of start to navigate through it, so to speak? Yeah, I yeah, I think it does. I think that also, you know, when I you know this ebb and flow, it sort of for me it echoed as a as a physical force as much as a force of time or a force of story. Because I think this um you know this idea of of weaving stories and the history of a place into your work that seems to be quite a strong part of it. Yeah, I, I I think I'm interested in the way that histories, whether they're mythical or real, impact on landscape, and that's particularly evident in Tremonier and Marazine and Penzance and and actually the whole of Cornwall and the Southwest. Because I've done other research projects developing these methods. So 
looking and thinking when I went to Tremonia about St. Michael's Mount, the perspective from Tremonia Gardens, and then eventually um, getting down to Chapel Rock and the walkway. These are things that sort of resonated with me and were, were sort of starting points for uncovering, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of my connection that I might form with it? And then starting to allow that sort of imaginative journey to happen as a result of looking into these things. Okay, um, Doug, I'm going to slightly pin you down a little bit more on the pieces for the Tremonier. Your your main piece, which is the central sculpture, is, I believe, called, is it Cornelian? Cornelian, yeah. Cornelian. And Martin Horman has written that it's a, it, it's, it's a composite of materials and thus of origins. What you just said about folklore and the sort of energies around that, and the, I mean, there's certainly something, there is that slightly figurative quality to your works, but it's, I mean, it's on first sight, it is it's very abstract. It's a ceramic piece. It's um, as a green, is green, which I um, personally think is what I always associate with kind of folk, folk traditions more as a color. And it is human in scale. It's quite small human in scale, but there is a sense of humanity there. Mm. And I wonder, could you, Start with explaining the title to us, Cormelian. Yeah, sure. So Cormelian is the name of Cormoran the giant, his partner. And you can look up, there's many different versions of the story that includes Jack the giant killer that we all will have known from childhood. The story that I was drawn to was the fact that Cormoran was tasked with building St. Michael's Mount. So gathering the stone and doing it and um, being a bit of a lazy giant and a bit of a terror during that time, he delegated the work out to his um, partner, Cormelian, and he went to sleep and just sort of put his feet up as a, a male giant might do in that time. And Cormelian, in getting this stone from quite far away and bringing it to the, the site, got sort of tired and was like, why am I always traveling so far away? I think I'll just pick some stone up from here. And at this point, Cormelian woke up. She drops the stone that she has, which is a green granity agate stone. And that stone is what forms uh, Chapel Rock today as part of that history. So I was, yeah, I was captured by the kind of the beauty and eloquence of that story sort of passing down and in some way informing the the figurative, the loosely figurative elements of this sculpture. You know, it, it has a sort of a female genitalia, this this piece of tree, you know, the, your right to allude to the green and that sort of coming to life. Um, I almost thought it was almost like fountain-like coming out of the top of this, this thing. So, there is that, and then, but on the on the bottom right, as you're looking at it, there is these two two of the elements that we've used in the fountain part of the sculpture, as if it's a sort of somebody being interviewed and crossing their legs very 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 daintily, um, and it looks like two crossed legs, and in a quite coy in 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 the feeling. And I'm just wondering why. I mean, that sounded like a it feels like a decision that was made to me separate, uh, either later or the starting point or something. But could you talk through that decision to put those there? I think that there's maybe things that are more kind of uh, formally joyful while you're making sculpture. You, you're involved in a process and things happen and, and unexpected things happen and evolve. And so that sort of the falling element. And then I kind of got a, a, a slight reverie out of the, the reclining aspect of it. You know, the, the, you think of the reclining nude or it made me almost think of Manet's Dejeuner Celebre when you're sort of, you know, the, the woman 
woman with her leg in that pose and there being this sort of just playful imaginative leaps that you make as a part of a creative process. And when I did it, I was like, yes, I need something like that to kind of feel like the elements aren't static and to increase that animated nature of it. And and it is set on a stage this purposefully raised there is a platform there is so it's it's as a sculptor, it's just trying to sort of play with the, the the structures and the materials and processes that we have at hand and, and sort of making the most of them. So it's, it's interesting to go from one point where you have folklore and a sort of a strict structure to another point, which is much more to do about creative process and, and sculptural right. ideas. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that brings me to, you know, I wanted to ask you about the materials you're using, because um, obviously they're, you know, they're ceramic sculptures and they're sitting on a, one of them is sitting on a wooden base, but um they include all sorts of um other materials that i guess you have gathered in you know probably in the area where the where the story plays and the comb- and the combination and sort of where and how does that engagement start for you you know with the you, you mentioned the story side and now how and where does material side come in I think it's in two ways. One is about this. It goes back to the ebb and flow, actually, that you were referring to right at the beginning. I think that my interest in understanding place is key in terms of, okay, we all walk. But as I walk, I also try and gather information and material. So that's sort of one side of that. So it might be bits of stone. It might be a bit of wood, twigs, whatever it is. But but that coupled with language and narrative and history is is that gathering element so that's that's the sort of structure that I'm trying to work with but there's also an element in my studio practice that's to do with uh, making and using materials in a way that feels right to me so this idea of say extruding or throwing or constructing building using clay predominantly because for me malleable materials like clay or plasticine or wax in the way that I use it is is a activator for the other stuff that I'm gathering. So there's this element of the found um, and the gathered and then this constructed. And it's how those two things come together that interests me. That's that's the point that I'm trying to sort of exist in. I mean I can I can really um you there very much about you know about the working the clay and about um following the the possible possibilities of the materials in the different stages because that's you know quite a lot of what I do but I think by the way you added this collected materials you add something completely different to it um and I think to me when I look at it it's almost as if it adds an element of time because you know some of the rocks or some of the bits of iron ore or you know that you include in the clay geologically they're probably millions of years old I mean there's something else going on uh, um that reaches far beyond that exploration of of just what the you know the clay offers you in itself absolutely and i think that time and place are important to so many of us as artists and i think that you're right that when you impact say a piece of granite that you find and to know it's you know millions of years old that that has a significance in in the material equally it might be um a piece of rubber it might be uh, a piece of reclaimed furniture whatever these wherever these things sit within time impact on that but i think the thing that i'm always trying to grapple with is 
is what is the space some have referred to an actuality what is that space how do i inhabit that that exists almost between realms so if i am using materials and using this clay as an activator almost like a catalyst then does it sort of reverberate mm-hmm. between the reality that we see into into another space that's that's what i'm i'm sort of trying to push for thanks this is this is really good the um you've got three pieces in the show you've got the cormelian as we've just discussed and then the giant's well which i think you've been referring to materially uh, which is a piece behind and also a a monoprint called Seraph, which as far as I understand it, Seraph is uh, the sort of top-notch angels, they're the sort of top table of angels. So the, I think the monoprint, which sits to the left of the of, of the main sculpture, certainly visually is, is I mean, I think it's sort of thematically linked, but visually it is much, I think, is very closely linked with, with Cormelian. Giant, the Giant's Well, which I can see thematically has a, a, um, has a link, to me was, I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know why you put that in because it felt like a visual, almost a non sequitur to the other two pieces. And so I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to convince me why that was a good idea. <laughs> it's so much sense to me. Can I convince you? <laughs> Sorry. No, it's all right. I think that the show allowed for a certain amount of experimentation to kind of say, well, what is what is wandering around uh, about in terms of our practice and our ways of thinking? It might be that there's a methodological difference between the giant's well that that makes it feel perhaps even formally different from the visual relationship that there is between the prince Seraph and Cormelian. But I think that I wanted the pieces to kind of have a connection with place and time there. And they were things that came out of that experience of, of making the work leading up to Tremonir. So I'm I'm always a little bit at odds about an idea that the three works um, with a certain amount of freedom and experimental nature of the show that I wanted to, to test that out. But for me, I feel they kind of work because I know the reference of the Giants Well in relation to the the fable and and the the place that we've been talking about in um, in that area. So. Yeah, I mean, it's if if you don't feel that, that's fine. You know, please tell me. No, I mean, I'm really a challenge. I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to be to 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 learn about, it. and I was quite intro, I was quite intrigued by that. That that seemed very different from the other two, but in a way that did create a for me, it created tension. It was certainly I noticed that when um, Martin was hanging your piece, that your pieces that that he found very, that quite difficult to work out how to how to bridge that gap. And one of the things that he tried when you weren't there, actually, was to put them very close together. And that didn't work because, I mean, it didn't work, actually, just in terms of movement of people, but thematically either. So it was, but that was, I think, was quite interesting, the, how difficult it made that process, which meant that a lot more thought, I mean, I'm not suggesting this is a, a technique one should all employ, but it certainly created a lot more, you had to put a lot more thought into how those things, how the pieces were 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 portrayed. I'm not saying that it took away anything. In fact, if anything, it added to it. I was just going to say that actually that formal relationship, uh, Martin, did work out really well. And I think that that was an advantage of actually putting the piece in because there was a a triangle that linked the three things. And I think that that, for me, when I saw it, is what it needed. And that relationship to be had in a kind of a in a, in a triangular shape was was I think quite powerful. So I was very grateful to Martin to, and to all of you to uh, allowing that to be done. But sorry, Barbara. Yeah, I was. You know, to me, it, 
there's nothing like a giant if there's nothing smaller than than the giant <laughs> and it was you know and it was the giants well that that turned chameleon into the giant and and them um and i was actually in the room that day where your things got shifted around a lot and to me they had a relation at any place they were because of that you know be, because there was the giant and there was this compact really strong piece with all its materials you know so different but because there there were UT pieces there so they had to have connection and to me it was you know it was that piece that turned chameleon into the giant um so yeah yeah there's there's a nice scale reference there and it was interesting that seraph this print actually came right at the end of the process of, of making and thinking for me. And and I was interested in the title as well, as you say, about an angelic being, but this kind of sense that we're talking so much, we're using a name about something that doesn't exist, but it has a powerful sort of presence when you, when you start to think about yeah. it and what it might be. It, it gives you this sense of recognition. And in the same way, an object like the giant's well, this this essentially this broken vessel that relates very closely to the giant's well, um, which if you've been up St. Michael's Mount, is about halfway up and um is, you know, the the home place of Cormoran and Cormelian, you know, this sort of lovely sort of well, uh, stone made pitch halfway up the the hill there. So yeah, I I I take both of your points, uh, but I, I feel that I'm really pleased to hear that, Barbara, that, that you've got that kind of sense of um them, them coming together like that. I think the aspect of that came across when when the when the monoprint went up, which I think has a, a sort of otherworldly quality to it, and I think it for me it it, it created a, um, a sort of I suppose an echo of veneration, which affected Cormelian to me. It, it, it turned because for me when I first encountered Cormelian, there was a crudeness in the in in the in the in, in the ceramic, the way the ceramic sort of is is slightly. Slightly fallen, flopped, and bent, and things. There was a, but actually, as after seeing the serif, that suddenly turned this. It made more sense of it visually. It made it more kind of. It suddenly turned into an object of beauty, and I think there was something to do with the act of veneration. And there was also a quality of stained glass about the uh, about the print serif. And I mean, I'm I'm very interested in this sort of intersection between um, religious iconography and everyday life, and also folklore and. And and I think that for me that bridged it very nicely. I just wonder whether there's a, that's something that is a constant in your work. That <laughs> not not a constant. No, the constant is um, the ability for us to have a conversation about it, and that's what I'm trying to promote. I mean, it's interesting that so many of the podcasts that I've done have um, the artists have thought a lot about the Camino Way and the pilgrimage route, and obviously this very close sense of. Uh, the religious pilgrimage. And then right at the end, we're sort of talking about folklore and stuff that is paganistic and 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 they're overlapping, you know. And so I think that that interests me, the way that the same path, the same road that we walk can have these overlaps of uh language and meaning and history and thinking and, and the way that we relate to it as human beings as much as anything is something we're trying to understand again and then as martin said in his writing about my work you know there's it's about the imaginative leap that happens after that and that's that's what sort of fascinates me in the work i i I think the the beauty though of um having an object like that around you know having having that um giant well say living with you for a year or some time that this leap will change all the time isn't it you 
you come in one morning and the and the leap goes this way and another day comes this way. And I think that's the kind of um you know the the, the power of a sculptural object. Um it, you know it really um sort of and i I find your both pieces or this whole triangle, it really radiates that kind of energy, you know, that you that it changes all the time. And maybe I don't know, I think we have to wind up soon. <laughs> but and I think partly you answered this already, but um I want to throw this question back to me because you asked that in in my interview, you know, how sort of poetry comes into your work. And I think because you already related um a lot to stories, but that that I, I would really like to sort of offer that question back to you because I think that is a very important um part of your own work, no? Um yes. I maybe don't feel that I'm I'm using or understanding about poetry in in the way that you're that maybe I I directed it at yourself, Barbara. I am particularly interested in philosophy and the way that that helps to uh, underpin some of the thinking here. So and I suppose there's a there's a connection between poetry and philosophy and and the the unknown. You know, is is like me mentioning this word, the actuality, or or in all of these works, for me, the the animism is something that mm-hmm. um, uh, as well helps me helps to ground at least my thinking in in an approach in the studio. I think that any work that is that I'm looking at in the show that is striving some way to be poetic by reaching beyond itself, you know, to 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 go in those spaces between words is something that I'm drawn to. So if that helps to. <laughs> Could I add add something to that as also as a a concluding um, comment that I think for me, what you've done with Cormelian for my uh, is is you've you've pulled off something slightly magical for me in my experience of it is, is it turning from the from the getting to know that piece has turned it from me from something that was quite obscure and um, not not hostile, but so so unfamiliar to me that I, I, I couldn't find a way into it. But as I spent time with it as I thought about it a bit more, as I looked at your other piece, especially the Seraph piece, that that intrigue suddenly took on a, a growing familiarity and almost I found myself with a sense of affection and a little bit of veneration with it. There was something about it that had that, that quality. And I just thank you for giving me that and giving me that experience, Doug. Well, that's high praise. Thank you very much, Mark, for saying that. I really appreciate <laughs> appreciate all your comments today. Thank you for, for relaying them. It's really nice because I haven't actually had much of a chance to talk with anybody about it. So this has been really, I'm very grateful that you've come up with this idea of, of interviewing me about the work. So thank you very much. I'm very pleased we did. And thank yeah. you. For speaking great. Of. Thank you so great. much. Thanks, and, guys. Uh, yeah, thank you. No problem. Right, that's great. <laughs> That's great. So, ladies and gentlemen, now it's the um. Uh, we'll just uh, with the news, <laughs> <laughs> followed by the weather forecast. And, uh... That's it. That's it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wonderland Exhibition Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please click subscribe. You can learn more about the artists in this exhibition through social media, their websites, and online at the Royal Society of Sculptors.